0: Darren mentioned, it's good to be together in the house of the Lord, isn't it? And I'll tell you one thing that blessed my heart before she leaves, and that was to watch that young lady, I think that's Jule's daughter, is that right? Yeah, yeah, singing up there and leading us in worship. It's always good to see the children connecting like that. And I praise the Lord for that young lady who wanted to use her gifts this morning as We were led in worship. Uh, Let's go to the Lord and pray, and then we'll get into God's word for this morning. Join with me. We'll lift up our hearts. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we can be together this morning, and once again, as one expression of the body of Christ here in Hollister, lift up our praises to you, lift up our thanksgivings to you hear from your word, be fed by your word, fellowship with each other, build each other up through our mutual faith, and just be encouraged. We pray that you would lead us through the remainder of our service. I pray for the message this morning that you would take the words of scripture and open them up to us and help us grasp them. I pray that you would help those who belong to you grow a little bit more in your grace. I pray that if there are any here this morning who don't, that As we look at yet one more mark of a Christian life, that you would use your word to convince them that they're not Christians and bring them to put their trust in Christ. And then, Father, I want to pray for the congregation in one other regard. There's been a loss of a dear sister. She's absent from the body, present with the Lord. And as Darren said, that news is bitter, but it's also sweet. It's sweet for her. It's more bitter for those of us who have been left behind. But we just pray that you would be with those who are grieving, bring comfort that only you can bring, and then help her passing stand as a reminder that as she is gone, so we shall go sooner or later as we leave this life and come into your presence. And we pray that you would help all of us who remain to be making it a point to prepare for that journey for ourselves. So that when you call our name and we leave this life, we will be ready to meet you face to face. Please grant that. And now, Lord, we pray, bless your word, give me grace as I teach through this section of scripture. I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So whenever someone asks the question, how can I identify A true church, a church that really reflects the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, different groups of people are going to answer that question in different ways. For example, those who may be familiar with what we know as the Protestant reformers might say, well, the true church is one where the gospel and the word of God is properly preached and taught and where the ordinances are properly observed. Now, when I say ordinances, do you know what I'm talking about? Some are nodding their heads. For those of you who might not know, uh, Jesus left us two ordinances. Some churches call them sacraments. Uh, One is baptism. The other is observing the Lord's table. And so someone steeped in Reformation theology would say a true church is a church where the gospel is properly preached and the ordinances are properly administered. And then some Reformed-minded churches would say a third mark uh, church discipline is practiced. Um, Some might answer a little bit differently. Some might answer that a true church is a church that follows the right doctrine, the right teaching. And that would be a congregation that really puts a high uh, premium on their doctrinal statement. Doctrinal statements are good. Our church in Morgan Hill has one. We have one here at Grace. And so I'm not capping on that. But some people would say you've got to have a right doctrinal statement to be identified as a true church. Uh, Others might answer that a true church is a church that is structured properly. So a true church would be a church that's going to have elders and deacons and like that. Some people would say that. There's nothing wrong with saying that. Still, others might answer that a true church is a church that prioritizes Christ's mission in the world. And so if you're really a church that's in the mainstream of Jesus then the Great Commission is going to be important to you. For those of you who might not know what that is, the Great Commission comes from Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, where Jesus said all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. And so his disciples were to go into all the world and make disciples, etc., and so forth. Uh, so some people would focus on uh, a true church being a church that has Christ's mission in the world as a priority. And let me just tell you this, each of those perspectives Each of those perspectives are good things and each of those perspectives characterize any church that is a Christian church, right? But there's one mark that the master himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, said should characterize his church and his people and I would say that if that characteristic is missing, any or all of those other four really fall short, and that mark is found in John's gospel. Now, let me tell you what it, where it's found. It's in John chapter 13, and it's in verses 34 and 35. So keep your, well, open your Bibles to there. That's where we'll start before we get into First John. So some of you might say, oh, no, he's going to leave First John. No, I'm not. I'll be coming back to that. But in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus lays down a mark of a true church and true Christians, which is foundational to the other four things that I mentioned. And without which those other four characteristics don't matter much. And so follow with me, John 13, 34, and 35. Uh, This is in the upper room discourse, Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples before he went out and was crucified. And he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then in verse 35, he says this. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have the right doctrinal statement. He didn't say that. If you have the right focus and mission, he didn't say that. If you have the right leadership structure, he didn't say that. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. Love for one another. This is the one mark that Jesus himself said would be evidence that a church or an individual were his. Let me say that again. This is the one mark that Jesus himself said would be evidence that a church or an individual were his. Love for one another. That's a pretty big statement. By this, everybody will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's, that's, that's heavy. It's simple, but it's heavy. And all of the qualities of a true church listed earlier don't matter if love for one another is absent. But with love, the qualities that I listed as I got into this message will be empowered. Now, if Jesus said that love for one another is to be how all will know that a person or group are his true disciples, then it's no wonder when you get into 1 John that the author of 1 John, John the Apostle, who in John's Gospel is only identified by the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's no wonder that John, who wrote 1 John, would put such an emphasis on love for other brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the true marks of a Christian in a Christian church. But that's exactly what he, did, what he has done. And so, uh, this far in our study in 1 John, we've actually seen three qualities which are characteristics or marks of a true disciple of Christ. Uh, a true Christian has faith in Christ. We've seen that. A true Christian has an honest view of personal sin. We've seen that. And last Sunday, we talked about how true Christians love and obey God's word. So that's the third mark of a true Christian. Now, here's the fourth mark of a true Christian. The fourth mark of a true Christian, and by extension, a true Christian church, because all a Christian church is, is a gathering of a bunch of true Christians individually following Jesus, right? The fourth mark of a true Christian is the true Christian will love other brothers and sisters in Christ. The true Christian will be a person who loves other brothers and sisters in Christ. And John emphasizes this in three different places in 1 John. And so if you read through 1 John from start to finish, you'll come across three sections the first of which is our text today, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, where John says a lot about loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as I said, the first place, our text for today, is John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And so if you haven't turned to 1 John, turn there with me or scroll there with me. And I want you to follow along. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 7 through 11 and then we'll unpack these verses. So, continuing from where we left off last week, John wrote these words starting in verse 7 of chapter 2 Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And then, verse 8 seems like it's contradictory. He says, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. Well, you could stop and say, "Now, wait a minute. Are you or are you not? But follow along. He says, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And then comes this fourth mark of a true Christian. And John's going to state it in a negative term and then in a positive term. Verse 9, 10, and 11. The one who says he is in the light, and Jesus is the light. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. That's the negative side. Here comes the positive side. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And then John restates the negative But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The word of the Lord. And we see some specific things from these verses. Summarizing what we see from these verses is this, uh, because Jesus gave his followers a new commandment to hate brothers and sisters proves one is not a Christian, while to love brothers and sisters in the Lord proves that one is a Christian. That's what these verses teach us. In a nutshell, that's what these verses teach us. And this means that the application question which faces each of us this morning who identify as Christians is this, how is my love life? how is my love life toward other believers in the Lord? That's what we should ask ourselves when we read a text of scripture. How does it apply? Well, that's how it applies. It makes me ask, how is my love life toward other believers? Now, our scripture, 1 John 2, verses 7 through 11, has two parts, and so I want to give you two words to hang this set of verses on. The first word is assertion. And the second word is application. What I mean is that John makes an assertion at this point in his letter. And then after he makes that assertion, he makes an application. So what is the assertion? John makes an assertion, first of all, and that assertion is in two parts. Verses seven and eight. He says that he's not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment, and the old commandment is the word which they had already heard. And so that's what verse 7 says in a nutshell. And so what in the world is he talking about? What does he mean when he says what he says? That he's not writing a new, but an old commandment which they had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. What in the world is that about? Well, what that is about is this, okay? It's a reference to the gospel. That's the word that these believers had heard from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of their faith. It's a reference to the gospel that they had heard and how those who know God must keep his commands and live like Jesus lived. Now, we talked a little bit about that last Sunday, when we unpacked uh, the verses preceding. And the last verse that we didn't unpack very much was verse six, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And so that's what John is referring to. That's what John is referring to. Now, what commands had they already received? And let me just share with you the commands that they had already received. Um, there are only two great commandments when you look at the scripture and you look at what is stated about God's commands. Now, some of you know what those two great commandments are. Anybody tell me what they are? They both have something to do with love and I can see lips moving and a little bit of noise but I can't hear very clearly. What's the first great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. What's the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, John's bringing it into more specificity. Uh, Yes, we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. And in the church, uh, the first place that our neighbor appears is our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And so they had heard of these two commandments for sure. There's no doubt about that. Because when the apostles preached, they preached from the Old Testament. That was the scripture they had at the time. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 5 is the Old Testament command to God's covenant people that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's a part of the Old Commandment. In Leviticus nineteen 18, we're told that we're not to take revenge against people who have done us wrong, but rather we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's another part of the old commandment they had received. And then when Jesus was walking the earth, he reemphasized this. Now, let me show you where he reemphasized it. Keep your finger in 1 John chapter 2 and look back with me to the book of Matthew. Look back with me to the book of Matthew. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22 In verse 35 and 36 of Matthew chapter 22 says this. One of them, that is those who are questioning Jesus, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him, and he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now listen to what Jesus says. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, This is the first, or this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depends the whole law and the prophet's. Paul goes so far as to say that love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no harm to its neighbor. And so when you consider what was the old commandment that John had already spoken to them and taught them, it was the gospel on how those who knew God must keep his commands and live like Jesus lived. Also how the Holy Spirit com, um, empowers us to do that. And when the text says, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked, how did Jesus walk? He walked in perfect conformity to the commands of his father and he walked and lived out a life of perfect love, not only for his friends, but also for his enemies so that he filled with the love of God because he was God in the flesh could actually pray as he hung on a cross, having been crucified by his enemies. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And only a person filled with love for his creatures would pray forgiveness upon those who would brutally and unjustly put him to death. You following me? And so John is referring to these things when he talks about this old commandment. But then John says in verse 8 what seems to be a contradiction. On the other hand, I am writing to you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What in the world is that about? What does this mean? As I said earlier, I'll say again, it seems contradictory, right? Did you write an old commandment or a new commandment? Which is it? Which is it? Which is it? Um, And it's important for us to kind of understand what he's doing here. Uh, What he is saying is this. uh, The commands given in the gospel weren't new. The Old Testament and Jesus' teachings, they were old. But, 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 when Jesus came, and whenever Jesus comes into a person's life, something happens. He transforms even the old into something new. That's how great the impact of Christ coming is. And so when Christ came, He transformed even the old commandments which the Pharisees and the scribes had degraded to a point that it was just external um, conformity, uh, nothing from the heart. Christ came, and he transforms those things by giving life to them, and that life is seen through the life of his followers, right? And that's what John is touching on here. Um, He transforms even the old into something new, and the impact is great. The impact is unbelievable, and I was thinking about a way to illustrate this, and one of the things that came to my mind was a poem that I have heard, and somewhere I heard it recently. Some of you may be familiar with it if you're into poetry, but the title of the poem is A Touch of the Master's Hand. Have any of you heard that poem, or you know what I'm talking about? All right, so let me tell you a little bit about the poem titled Touch of a Master's Hand. Uh, It was written by Myra Brooks Welch. It illustrates this quite well. Uh, It's about an old violin. And sometimes the poem is titled The Old Violin. In a nutshell, this is what the poem poem is about. It's about an old violin which was on auction for a few dollars until an old man came, brushed off the dust off the violin, brushed off the dust off of the bow, and then played a pure, sweet melody. And then the old violin, which was being auctioned for $1 or 2 or $3, ended up selling for $3,000. And the crowd cries out, what made the difference? What made the difference? Why the disparity between the costs? And the answer was, nothing made a difference in the old violin except the touch of a master's hand, right? Do you want to hear the poem? Everybody wants to hear the poem. <laughs> Listen to this poem, because the author of the poem, Myra Brooks Welch, was a Christian, and she wrote the poem to make a spiritual point. So listen to this poem. If I can get through it without getting emotional, I usually can't. It was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. When am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar. Do I hear two, two dollars. Who makes it three? Three dollars once. Three dollars twice. Going for three, but no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the boat. And wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings. He played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what now am I bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with his bow. 1,000, 1,000, do I hear two? 2,000, who makes it three? 3,000 once, 3,000 twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand it's a beautiful poem isn't it this is what John was communicating in verses 7 through 8 you had the old commandment and then Jesus came and transform the old commandment in such a radical way that the old was like a new commandment. And the interesting thing is that Jesus' transformation doesn't just apply to the old commandment made new by the life of the Son of God. But it also applies to people. Like the last stanza of that poem references Because there is huge transformation that takes place through the touch of the master's hand, right? All right, so that's the assertion. Verse seven and eight, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. However long you've been a Christian, brothers and sisters, you've had the old commandment. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He makes all things new. If any man or any woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. We're in a process of being made new. That's the assertion John makes. And then he follows that by giving his readers an application. And that application comes in verses 9, 10, and 11. So what is the application? Well, if I want to put a structure on verse 9, 10, and 11... And I just want to use one letter. I could write N and then P and then N. Or I could put it this way. He starts with a negative and he ends with a negative And sandwiched in between the two negatives is a positive. That's how he gives the application. And so let's look at the application. Here's the negative, verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. There's the negative. Here comes the positive. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And then verse 11, here's the negative. It's re-emphasized. Verse nine is reemphasized. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness is blind in his eyes. You see the N and the P in the end? Now, let's talk about what he means here. Uh, John talks about hate. And that's a powerful word. If somebody says to you, I hate you, they may say that on a whim. Sometimes spouses may say that to each other. Oh, I just hate you because of what you did. But they don't really hate their spouse usually. But if somebody doubles up their fist and turns all red and says, I hate you, then we figure that that person has quite a negative emotion toward us to say that they hate us. And if you say that you hate somebody, you have a pretty negative emotion toward that person. And so is that what John is talking about here? Well, the word hate, translated hate in our English Bibles, comes from a certain Greek word, and the term is meseo. Now, let me tell you what it means. It's not talking about a hatred that could lead to malicious physical assault. That's not what it's talking about. What the word Meseo means is to detest. So have you ever detested someone? I detest you. It means to detest. It can also mean to love less. To love less. Man, these ten people in the church, I just love them to pieces. I just love their socks off. Well, what about these other 15 Christians? Well, you know, I just don't care for them too much. To love less. That's what this word means. It can also mean to slight. Have you ever slighted anybody? That would fall into this category. Or it means to postpone in love. To postpone in love. Here's a person. I know I should reach out and meet their needs. I know so that I, what they need is love. They need for me to tell them that I just love them and they're so important. But I don't particularly like them. I kind of detest them. And so I'm just going to withhold that word of encouragement. I'm going to postpone. I'm going to postpone. I'm going to postpone showing them love. That's what's wrapped up in this word Hate. When John says, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. All right? So hold that in your mind. And let's move to the positive. Love stands in contrast. Um, Verse 10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So love in this particular verse and also in other places where it appears in Uh, The letter of 1 John comes from the Greek word agapao. Um, Transliterated into English, we would call that agape love. And a lot of times we put a definition around agapao as unconditional love. Actually, there's a whole lot more to it than that. And so what does John mean when he says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling? Well, the Greek word agapao means in this context a love that welcomes, a love that welcomes, a love that embraces. It means to be fond of. It means to love dearly. Now, do you see the contrast? Hate and love is contrasted. Detesting and loving less and sliding and postponing in love or postponing in esteem is contrasted with welcoming others and being fond of others and dearly loving others. Now, which is the mark of the Christian? Verse 10. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you are welcoming toward each other. If you are fond of each other, if you like each other, if you love dearly each other with no distinction. How can we say no distinction? Because Jesus loves us with no distinction. You take the person who is a Christian that is the most undesirable person for you, and Jesus Christ loves that person with all of the depth and breadth of love, That he loves you with. Every person in this auditorium this morning who identifies as a follower of Jesus Christ is loved by the Lord Jesus Christ exactly the same deeply, broadly, fully, completely, totally, passionately. We're loved. Unconditionally. That's who Christ is. And so when John says what he says. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. That goes back to verse 6. The one who says he abides in him on himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Love never causes another person to stumble. Why? Because love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And the reason that John says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, is because we're in touch with the light. The light is a person, Jesus I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we're in a relationship with the light. The way we abide in him is to walk like he walks. And the thing that characterized him more than anything is that he was the man of love. He was the man of love. Not just of his friends and his disciples, but even of his enemies, right? Do you see the contrast? Do you grasp it? Is it speaking to you? Is it tugging on your heartstrings? Here we have a mark of a true Christian. A true Christian is evidenced by the fact that she or he is doing their best to walk like Jesus walked. And because Jesus walked in love, the Christian does too. The Christian does too. And so we have to ask. How is my love life toward my brothers and sisters in Christ? How is my love life toward other believers? Are you a lover of other Christians, regardless of who they are? Are there other Christians here who you detest, love less, slight, put off, loving? Positive side, negative side to the question. How is your love life toward other believers here or elsewhere? This text calls us to that. So then the question becomes, how can we who don't naturally love learn to walk in love? Well, if you are a born-again Christian this morning, you already have all of the goods necessary be able to walk in love. Let me tell you what I mean. The goods happens to be a person who dwells inside you. What am I talking about? Well, when a person is born again, they're born again by the spirit of the living God, right? We're made new and we put our faith in Christ. And that happens by the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus said in John 3, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he'll never see the kingdom of God. He'll never enter the kingdom of God. And Paul says in Ephesians, I believe, chapter 1, that if we're Christians, we've all received the seal of our redemption, the Holy Spirit. And so, you and I, as Christians, have the Holy Spirit living in us. He's the person that opened our eyes to the gospel, He's the person that gave us new life. He's the person that empowered our faith in Christ. He's the person that empowers us walking with Christ and making us more and more like Jesus. And that's why I said, if you're a Christian this morning, a true Christian, you already have the goods in your heart to be able to walk in love toward other people. And the goods is none other than the Holy Spirit of God. So how does the Holy Spirit of God empower love? Well, that's a really good question. Because you see, the key to loving other Christians is to know Christ and follow the Spirit and asking the Spirit to empower love in you in areas where it lacks. Look, all of us know what it means to prefer certain believers over other believers. That's human nature. Even though we're redeemed, that's the way things roll. So what's the key to loving equally like Jesus loved equally? Asking the Spirit to empower love here's why the first fruit that the spirit of God produces in the life of a believer is love that's true if you read Galatians chapter 5 you go down to the point where Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit this is what you're going to learn the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long-suffering gentleness goodness faith meekness and self-control against such there is no law um, if you're walking in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control, then verse 10 is going to be true to you, about you. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Paul says against those fruits there is no law. John says there's no cause for stumbling in him. Now, what was the first fruit of the Spirit in that verse out of Galatians 5? Starts with an L if you missed it, and it ends with O-V-E. Love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Only the Spirit of God can empower love in us toward those that we don't naturally love. And as we walk in the Spirit and trust Him, that is indeed what He does. And that is the mark of a Christian. And so, let's go back and test ourselves as we close. Now we've covered four marks of a true Christian. What's the first one? A true Christian has faith in Jesus Christ, right? What's the second mark? A true Christian has an honest assessment and view of his or her own personal sin. A non-Christian has an honest view of other people's sins. A true Christian has an honest view His or her sins. That's what the second part of John chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 has to do with. Here's the third mark of a true Christian a true Christian is a person who loves the Word of God and desires and strives to keep His commandments. Not because the commandment keeping is what saves him or her, but because the way we show our love for God is by walking in his will for us. We covered that last Sunday in some detail. Uh, Jesus in John fourteen twenty one, he who has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Obedience for the Christian is not legalism. That's what I said last Sunday. Obedience for the Christian is a, manifest- a manifestation of love for the father and for the son. Right? So those are the first three marks. Here's the fourth mark. The fourth mark is that a true Christian walks in love toward other brothers and sisters in Christ. And I could add to it by saying this, strives to love any and all Christians equally like he or she is loved by Christ. That's what John's teaching us. But to hate other believers is to show we are no Christian at all. That's why these instructions are so important. And so my closing exhortation to you is this. Use the mirror of scripture to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. I do that regularly. Any wise believer will do that as well. Let's pray. We just ask you, Father, now to um, take what's been spoken this morning and seal it to our hearts. Um, And I pray as your true believers here in the auditorium use the mirror of Scripture to test themselves, that you would just give assurance of salvation, because that is one of the reasons John wrote his book. So that we who believe on the name of the Son of God might know we have eternal life. And so that we will continue to believe on the name of the Son of God. Just give assurance through the teaching. Now Father, I don't know every heart like you do. You know every heart. You know all the detail of every person here today. Um, There may be some who are not truly believers. Externally maybe they look like a true believer, but When they take the mirror of scripture and test themselves, the mirror of scripture shows them that they're not. I pray for them that you would give them a sense of humility. I pray that you would give them a sense of honesty. I pray that you would enable them to face themselves honestly and to face themselves honestly before you. And then, Father, that you would grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth so that they who look like true believers but aren't, become true believers externally and internally for your glory. Please use your word now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm assuming since Darren stepped out that he doesn't have another announcement. And so I want to close us with a scripture for a benediction. And so, if you're still in 1 John, look at chapter 4 with me. Look at chapter 4. I said earlier that this concept of loving one another in Christ is so important. That John visits it three times in his little five-chapter letter. And the first time is in the verses we looked at, chapter 2, verse 7 through 11. In chapter 4, starting in verse 7... We have the third time that he visits it. And with this, I want to close. Some of you know a song that goes by these words. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He who loveth not knoweth not God because God is love. That's the song. And then in the song, there's a refrain, Beloved, let us love one another. Verse seven, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, verse nine, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, verse 11, we also ought to love one another. May the Lord, by his grace, make this congregation such a loving congregation that when people come and visit, they may not decide to stay and make this their church home. But if they choose not to make this church home their church home, they will nevertheless look back and say, though I chose not to attend there regularly, I've never been loved like I was loved in the midst of that Group of Christians, may the Lord grant it. God bless you. Have a good day, Lord.